welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. Before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions from two different guys and our guests. It's not to be treated as medical advice. If you do need advice, please reach out to someone like Lifeline. These Lads Are Mental recognises the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders, past and present, and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture, and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. So on today's show, we have the fabulous Varushka Darling. I find that getting down about something is, you know, is not going to help me out of the situation you know it's one of those things you know worrying about it isn't going to solve it you've just got to do it meet the challenge find the silver lining do what you can to make a better you know situation or if you can't just appreciate the kind of things that do give you joy the little things that you know that are you know bright lights we asked you what's Marushka like how would you explain her character I think she's smart, I think she's funny, I think she's kind of like classic, but I think she's also is a lover of ironic juxtaposition. So, you know, my uh, motto when I was much younger used to be, beauty must be destroyed, but from within. She's a doer, she's clever, she's, like I said, funny, she's, you know, compare, she's jack of all trades. I think we're just inherently fabulous, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the adversity has polished that diamond. <laughs> Physical violence, assault, indecent assault, and the only reason that I haven't been raped and murdered is because I can run very fast in <laughs> she is a Hall of Fame inducted Australian drag artiste. She burst onto the scenes in the 90s as a fashion model. She's also written and performed in award-winning stage shows. And she made history in 1999 when she became the first drag queen in Australia to host her own TV show, Barushka's Closet, which was on MTV. And this was at a time when there was only really one or two openly gay TV hosts. She's also appeared in internationally awarded advertising campaign, and she's worked extensively across Australia and around the world to open doors for the drag performance community. We can't wait to have her on the show. What's happening, Shaga? Is it windy outside? Why? Fucking beards blew off. <laughs> I know, I look like a changed man, don't I? I don't know how I feel about that, mate. I know, it looks shocking on me. But... I don't know, it looks shocking, it just looks new. Looks, looks different. Bit of a midlife crisis. I see that. Is that have you, have you, so, hold on. What's that? Is that a chin strap you've got? No, it's not. It's uh, I actually have this autoimmune condition. Oh, for fuck's sake. It was only a joke, mate. Don't you, don't you feel guilty? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have an autoimmune thing. You know, well, you've probably heard of alopecia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been on holiday. <laughs> I've got alopecia areata, which is, it affects just the, the hair in your beard, essentially. All oh, right, okay. I actually think you, I don't know, I feel like you might suit the beard without the beard a bit more. Really? I, I, I think it looks a bit better. What? Uh, I look like a tadpole or something. I don't, <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see many tadpoles with blonde hair, mate. I've no chin. I haven't done this in a long time. Why have you done it? Shits and giggles. That is some laugh, to be fair. Nothing more funny than just shaving your beard, man. What a laugh. Some people um, buy a motorbike or, I don't know, I shave my beard. 
You look like you've got a bit of a Peter Pan on you there. I've been out coaching all week in the sun. By the way, where's your chocolate? What have you got this week? Uh, chocolate hobnob. Chocolate hobnob. Oh, I've got a wee belter. That's not that's not chocolate, mate. Sorry to disappoint you. That's hula hoops. But it's kind of brown. Oh my god, the smell. So it's a barbecue hula hoop. <laughs> barbecue hula hoops. And I've actually done one even better. Do you ever have a hula hoop sandwich? Aye, peace and crisps. Peace and crisps, brilliant, mate. Aye. Look at that. That is aye. Love. Is that butter as well, isn't it? Butter and mustard and mayo. Oh, I don't know about the mustard, but well, I tried it, so I can't really comment. But butter and crisps and peace and butter and crisps is good. Oh, why are you with you? Mate, every single time, this is like a replica every episode of the Chucky walking in. Yeah, this is a signal. The Wi-Fi doesn't work. By the way, for the listeners, I've got something to clear up from uh, last week. So for any of our adoring fans who listen to more than one uh, podcast, we've had 109 plays, I think it is now. So we're, we're doing quite well, Gary. Is that good? So I want to clear up one thing. So you were talking about my dog always being around. And last week, I told you a story about him eating the croissants. <laughs> I, really, I really listened to how you said croissants. Could you just say it again? Croissants? We were like, croissants. Hold <laughs> on, you mean I say that in a Scottish accent? <laughs> croissant. How is that clearing anything up for him? That's just you repeating what I said. I know, but it's like, something up, guys. Gary's got a Scottish accent. <laughs> I literally listened to it back. It was like, I have a little thing. Mate, I done two years of French at school, mate. I thought I was all right. Croissant. <laughs> it's like I've heard that story where you make a song in in the music world. They call this the car test, where you you put down a record in a recording studio. Well, then normally the producers like you got to get in a car and drive around, and listen to the song in a car. Apparently, that's a really good place to test whether the song is actually good because in the studio you get kind of worked up. So I've been doing the same with the podcast. As I'm going to bed and I listen to the podcast as a bit of a like acid test on does it sound good, blah blah blah. <laughs> and that's where I listen to everybody goes, What are you in croissants? <laughs> and also the second thing I want, well, this isn't really to clear up, this is more an endearing side to your accent. But I've had a few friends comment about the snake's wedding. Oh yeah, I haven't said that's classic. Snake's wedding is when you've got loads of wires going around, which I'm staring at right now. That's me, man. That's a... Uh... That's my dad used to always say it back home. I had, I had like a, play, a Sony PlayStation, I had my, my Sky dodgy box, I had all that, wires from everywhere. It's a fucking snake's wedding in here. <laughs> I also wanted to highlight this book. It's called uh, Notes to My Future Son. And I picked it up around the corner of my house here in Bondi in Orchard Street, the cafe there. And I started reading it. It begins with, it's written by a, a woman and is speaking to her future son. The future son, has, is, is the son being born yet? Is this the unborn yeah. child? This is like, she must have written this obviously when she was pregnant and uh, I think yeah. her son wasn't born, I don't think at this stage. Just after the gender, gender, gender reveal? Yeah, yeah, the balloon bursting. But it's just a really good message around kind of masculinity actually I found and the next generation of kind of, you know, men and what they're going to be. There's just amazing messages in here. I just re read a small bit. It says, I wish that all men felt safe to be themselves, that all boys felt safe in their homes, at school and in their community, that young men weren't at risk of sexual abuse, that our male suicide rates weren't climbing, that Indigenous Australian men didn't have the highest suicide rate in the world, that men weren't programmed to feel ashamed of their emotions from a young age, 
that repressed shame did not result in violence towards themselves, women, their families, and others. I wish I could fix all those problems now. I wish it was that simple. But these problems are embedded in our culture, media, society, and governing systems. Unpacking, unlearning, and relearning the damaging gender constructs will take time, and we have to start now. That's actually just like a kind of preamble to the book itself. But then in the book, it just has all these amazing little, sometimes just one-liners, which supposed to say to your son, and so, for example, it can be, it's as simple as it's okay to be scared. That's just one of the lessons on one of them there. And it's just littered with really cool little, just little life lessons yeah. about teaching this future man to be more open and touch with their emotions, which I felt was quite apt to everything that we're kind of doing. And particularly with our guest this week, who's Vrushka Darling, the fabulous drag queen. I think one of the questions that we have this week was around masculinity and what that means and self-acceptance. So it was just, it felt a bit serendipitous that I just picked this up. Interesting if that was your actual mom who wrote that. It'd be pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, so it's by a lady called Katie Get, but Katie is spelled with a C. So I might be pronounced that wrong. It might be Katie Get, Katie Get. But uh, notes to my favourite son. Like what's been happening with you actually this week? One of the lads I work with is moving house, so I had to cover all his coaching session so i've been out down at down coaching in the sun all week mate it's been quite good in the sun the old lanzarote legs i've got like proper da legs like just that uncle who just spends six months of the year in lanzarote baking with no sun cream on my legs go that color like proper golden brown remember those days though like i go pretty tanned as well yeah you got you know we used to live for the two-week holiday back in europe and then yeah you go you wouldn't well you might put sun cream on for the first day or two and then you put tanning oil on. And you back uh, to the Yeah. Remember that car- carrot oil? It didn't even have Absolute any sunscreen in it. Absolute madness. You come to Sydney where, like, you would even... Do- I don't think I use less than factor 30 here in Sydney. Then Ibiza or wherever I was, it was literally... Yeah, factor four. How low can I go? Somebody <laughs> go, oh, mate, any sunscreen will give you factor six. You'll be like, get out of here, fuck. Yeah. You have your B&Q? What a shite. <laughs> but do you have any redhead mates? I had a couple of redhead mates in Ireland. <laughs> Cafo, how are you, mate? He's in New York now, living life. She's pretty sorry about him, but with sun cream, like if anyone wore anything above 15, like you just, you'd slag capo. I was like, oh, I'll put on the factor 50 capo, you know, milky tan on you. But oh yeah, as you said, when you come over here, like 50 is kind of like almost like the norm, you know, you'll get 50. Yeah, not all the time. As I said, that week there, I was in the sun. So like, if I sat about with cat oil, man. <laughs> you'd be dead. I'd be frazzled, man. Well, get this right. I was, I was telling you about that story, Capo. <clears throat> so one of my other friends, Mark Johnson, aka Pinchy, he um Pinchy. His name is Pinchy. That's his nickname. Yeah, he's a he's a lawyer by trade, but he's a bit of a humanitarian. He's been working for charities in Africa and Asia. Uh, I think he's back in Africa now. Uh, he's an, he's an absolute legend. There's a great story where Capo went to see him in Africa, and he bought. He was in Tanzania. I think he went to Tanzania. And he bought sun cream off some guy, puts on the sun cream. He's out in the safari for the whole day. And then he comes home and it was obviously fake sun cream. And he was literally red raw. And there's a photo that goes around our WhatsApp group that he just will never live up because of that. So Mate, on, my, on, on holiday, see when you met me, uh, if you were with your mum and dad, you'd maybe meet another family maybe. and you would hang out with the kids and then they would hang out with the mum and dad. My mum and dad get along with us family, didn't really hang around with so the dad was redheaded. So my dad went and swapped for after sun with her sun cream when they, were, when they weren't there. Just because he was like every day wanted to hang about hang about with my mum and dad. So my dad's like, I can't get rid of this guy. So he just swapped, <laughs> swapped after sun with sun cream. They were out all day, got frazzled. Never seen the family again the rest of the trip. 
I was then flash with flash. And now he's got cancer. Yeah, we never saw him again. Yeah, it was a temporary solution that became a permanent one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Dad had a great holiday. That was the most important. <laughs> I'm also starting to think, geez, guy, I'm not going to mess with your dad. He sounds like an absolute headbanger. <laughs> uh, he's he's, a, he's a very streetwise. He's good crack. What's his name? Frank. How are you, Frank? It's like he's listening to this. No chance. That's my granddad's name. Well, it was my granddad's name. I actually have him even tattooed on my arm there. Frank. Well, hello, Vrushka. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. So as you can tell, we take this podcast really seriously. It's, you know, good. <laughs> the, the height of journalism, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had researchers working around the clock for the past week to get the hundred questions that Gary put together. Fantastic. Well, well done, Gary. Now, Gary was actually slagging me because I think with each episode, the questions are getting longer and the shows have been getting longer. And he was like, keep the questions below 10. I was like, yeah, yeah, no worries. And then I think I ended up at, what was it, 13? Uh, it was a few. 25. It was a few. So what's been happening with you, Varushka? How's things been? It's been look, I have to say this um, lockdown has been challenging because, you know, it's t- second time around and as a performer, there just haven't been the opportunities or the you know, the financial protections that we had the last time around. I kind of decided a while back that I was going to be part of the solution and rather than, you know, just sit around. So I got a job at the uh, Mass Vaccination Centre. So I've been working hard, making sure that people get vaccinated. And I'm also doing um, some of the pop-up clinics in some of the housing commission places as well to try and give access to people in those situations to vaccine. So my Guess is the sooner we get people vaccinated, the sooner I can get back to normal. <laughs> well, good on you. That sounds like you're doing some great work in the community. Great. And you know, it's good to have structure back. And I, you know, I'm I'm not not ashamed to say that it's also good to have an income back, you know, after yeah. two years basically of you know being inside. So it's great. I love it. It must have actually been quite hard. I mean, maybe tell us your your story with work because before the lockdowns, I was only thinking about this the other day, we had the lockout laws, which I presume would have also impacted, you know, your job and the work that you do. How has that been? So it's not even just been two years, right? You're talking probably a lot longer. We're talking 10 years, really. The lockout laws really, like, it killed the nightlife, as you know, and if you've been going out, you'll notice, you know, for example, the King's Cross used to be craziness every single night and I don't mean crazy as in like biffo crazy but just packed with people you know going out having fun and now it's turned into an urban center where people complain about any kind of noise but it, yeah it really killed it and it was you know it for the gay and lesbian community in particular and it was ridiculous that we got locked out because gay people are not going to go out and you know bash you we just don't do it you know it's not a phenomenon in the gay community so for us to be deemed some of the most violent venues was just absurd because what actually happened in the lead up to it was a lot of gay and lesbian people were getting attacked on the streets in Oxford Street and we had a local area police commander who was doing nothing about it and so when you know those two kids from you know the North Shore were you know horribly you know randomly attacked they just went okay let's have a look for statistics for violence and then they looked at all of these gay venues and then were reporting violence outside not saying that this was you know analyzing the situation and realizing oh well this is actually tax against gay people and then we got locked down as a result as some of the most violent you know venues 
in Sydney. Meanwhile, right, you know, next door or up the road, we have actually some of the most violent, you know, venues in Sydney that were able to, you know, trade and escape those kind of lockdowns. And it was ridiculous. And as a community, we only have, you know, limited number of venues and a limited number of places where we can make those social connections, feel safe, you know, form bonds and what have you. So to get locked out was it had a huge impact. DJs lost jobs, performers lost jobs, security lost jobs, bar staff lost jobs, and venues started shutting down. Mm. So we lost a lot because the government didn't do it due diligence. That when we started coming out of it, and you know, finally Gladys went, oh yeah, we used to have this incredibly lucrative nighttime industry, maybe we'll start relaxing rules. Then of course the pandemic hit. And what people kind of forget is that, you know, when the pandemic hits for the rest of the community, you know, of course it's a huge impact, but it actually hits hospitality and entertainment first. Because before the hospitality and the bar, you know, venues and the bars and the clubs and what have you are actually locked down. They had capacity restrictions on them that, you know, they were then not able to have the capacity within the club to, you know, hire performers because you've got to imagine that in- You've got a parrot uh, there in the back. <laughs> I do have a couple of parrots, so you may hear some noise as well. So what happens is that they can't have capacity because venues have to be able to um, have a manager. They need to have glasses. They need to have bar staff. They need to have security. So all of those have their wages that need to be paid for. So that the people who are most expendable are the people who are private contractors or sole traders. So it's your DJs, your performers, what have yeah, you. So we were locked down first. And because we don't get thought about, you know, when it came to things like financial packaging, you know, the government has no concept outside of, you know, full-time, permanent part-time and maybe casual. So sole traders, self-employed, just don't even register. Mm. So it was a long time before you know performers were able to you know access any form of financial assistance so it was you know dire straits there for a while mm -hmm. and when they did start funding it was for major events like what they call culturally significant events so it was your hamilton's your you know from homes you know yeah. those kind of events which absolutely deserve it you know and and they look at it and they go okay well these people you know these companies and these productions actually hire you know a million and one people which they do. So you've got your wig makers, you've got your costume designers, your choreographers, whatever. But they forget that, you know, when it comes to things like sole traders and, you know, individual artists, we're actually more of a community and we're more of the performing community. And most performing artists are not in those major companies. They're actually sole performers or in, you know, small troops. So for example, if you look at drag, drag has a lot of fancy overhead, <laughs> you know, literally and metaphorically. So, you know, we have, you know, the people we buy wigs from, we have the hairstylists, we have the choreographers, we have costume designers, we have all of those kind of people that, you know, if we're not working, they're not working. So it's this huge cascading flow on effect for us. You know, we're the first lockdown, we're the last who are actually, you know, compensated, and then we'll be the last to be let out, you know, in a full-time capacity. Such a huge domino effect just from that. Yeah, mm. but and that's just us. And I'm sure the same thing happens in other industries. Yeah, yeah. But I think that when it comes to like the pandemic, you know, we're canaries in the coal mine, quite literally, because we sing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's actually a great counselor, Jess Scully, who you might probably know already in Sydney, who lobbied for those, especially making income below, I think it was $75,000, who weren't initially in the government yeah. 
pay scheme when COVID hit and they had to lobby to try and get that in. And I also listened to a podcast from Tilly Lawless, who's a sex worker um, as part of an opera house uh, you know, show a couple of weeks ago. And it's just staggering how she explained the lack of infrastructure around yeah. the, sex, the sex industry, even though it is a legal industry here in Australia. Yeah. Even things like getting super, or if you have a sick day, you, you, you can't get uh, sick leave. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think if you, even though you were saying sole traders, when you add all them up across the whole country, the, the yeah. community that they form is actually quite a substantial size. Um, okay. and we, st- we still don't know the after effects, do we really, of this particular lockdown in, in terms yeah. of going back out and spending. So I don't want to bear more bad news, but probably the hospitality industry is going to be another one that's going to take longer maybe to recover before people get comfortable with spending their disposable income. But one of the questions we do ask our guests, and we, we've kind of, this is a nice little segue, but considering all that that's happened, so it's not really just the last few months, you're talking the last few years, how's your mental health been through that? Like, what does mental health mean to you? I know we, we've met each other a few months ago when you hosted a, a mental health charity, The Light Ball in Sydney. You know, what does mental health kind of mean to you? And like, why do you get involved with such causes like that? Well, first of all, my mental health is good. Thank you for asking. I kind of, um, even though, you know, I think it's terrible what has happened to the performance community, I kind of actually think that there's any community that is, that will survive it. We're most programmed for it because there is nothing secure. There's nothing safe. There's nothing certain in the performance community. So we're used to losing our jobs like that. But, and then having to go out and hustle to get, you know, to get more work. So I think hustling is in our kind of like our DNA. Of course, it's different during the lockdown where there's no other work to go and get, you know what I mean? But we, you know, a lot of us in the first lockdown in particular, you know, segued to online work, you know, and started up new directions. And again, I think it's also within our DNA as performers and sole traders is that we can't rely on other people, so we have to rely on ourselves. And I think that for me, when it comes to my mental health, this may sound trite, but I just kind of think you absolutely can get, you know, down about things and what have you, but I don't hold on to that because essentially getting down doesn't get you anywhere. You know what I mean? So I'd much rather, I mean, you know, of course that, like I said, that sounds trite because there are some people who, you know, who cannot help for whatever reasons, wiring, you know, chemical imbalance or, you know, from abuse or trapped into cycles of, you know, mental health issues, you know, that's not some, you know, position they can come to. But for me, I find that getting down about something is, you know, is not going to help me out of the situation. You know, it's one of those things, you know, worrying about it isn't going to solve it. You've just got to do it, meet the challenge find the silver lining, do what you can to make a better, you know, situation. Or if you can't, just appreciate the kind of things that do give you joy, the little things that, you know, that are, you know, bright lights in your, you know, day. Looking out and a gorgeous day that, you know, picks up your mood, you know, yeah. uh, reaching out to your friends, that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm not a mental health expert and I don't pretend to be a clinician or have any answers. That's just for me who I am. So, you know, I will acknowledge, uh, you know, if I'm feeling down, I'll acknowledge it, but I don't tend to wallow in it. I just kind of say, yep, that's what I'm feeling. And then I move on. What can I do, you know, to get out of this situation or to do something else? Why did I become involved? Um, I became involved because, you know, I just care about other people. 
number one. Number two, if I see, you know, a situation where, you know, I like to think that I'm empathetic, that, you know, if people need help, that I'm happy to help in, you know, if I can. And, you know, mental health is uh, a big issue within our community, you know, the gay and lesbian community and in the broader community at large, but in particular within the gay and lesbian community. So, you know, if I can address it in whatever way, you know, and do my little bit, you know, if I can bring a little sparkle that can bring a little joy, that can bring a little cash, <laughs> little, little pay a little therapist to help a little person, then, you know, I will do that. Well, if we can ask, if anyone that's listening, when lockdown does go away, don't forget Barushka Darling, wherever she is, <laughs> buy a ticket, go to a show, put, let's put some money back into that industry. I mean, that's obviously the big profile that you've got, and I'm sure that is something that you said, looking for that thing, it brings you joy. I'm sure performing is one of those things that brings you joy when you're feeling down. One question I, I thought I'd ask is if, for people who's listening who don't know the Verushka Darling profile, if, if you didn't know who Verushka Darling was or it was your friend, and we asked you, what's Verushka like? How would you explain her character? Um, I think, oh God, I think she's smart. I think she's funny. I think she's kind of like classic, but I think she's also is a lover of ironic juxtaposition. So, you know, my uh, motto when I was much younger used to be beauty must be destroyed, but from within. So, you know, it's always the, the prettiest, most put together person who, when they kind of fall apart, provides the most humor in the situation, you know, and then their dealings with those kind of like chaotic situations. The fish out of water, if you like. She's a doer. She's clever. She's, like I said, funny. She's, you know, compare. She's jack of all trades. She nope. does everything, but in really lovely shoes. <laughs> <laughs> She got quite the resume. Not only is she a, a drag queen extraordinaire, uh, but she's also been a model, been in ad campaigns, a history maker, and the first openly gay TV presenter on MTV's Verushka's Closet. Probably the first, like, well, definitely the first drag queen in Australia to have their own nationally broadcast TV show. And I would say one of the very few openly gay TV like hosts at the time. There were a few gay hosts that were not out. But yeah, yeah. So when I can, I you know, I first got my job at MTV in 1999, and the TV world was a very different place. So it was quite a revolutionary move. And at the time, I think MTV were looking for just to have some gay and lesbian representation, and they did some auditions for you know gay and lesbian people. And then they thought, oh, what could be more visual, you know, for a visual medium than you know drag queens. And they did a big first round kind of like interview or, or audition, if you like. And then they chose some of their favorites. I wasn't involved in that. And then they did a second round and got some more people. And then they did what often happens in the entertainment industry, especially when it comes to, you know, casting TV and film, is that they'll throw in some randoms. So just to see whatever else is out there. And so I was a random and I was thrown into the mix. I had no anticipation of ever getting, you know, the gig because I knew that I was a random, but they loved my audition and then they brought me back as a finalist. So um, uh, we had to do kind of like a live show as an audition. Uh, so I did that and I got the gig and I am very proud to say that I tripled the ratings for the time slot, which was great. And then I, I became the associate producer of the show. And then from there, I went on to promo produced and script write for MTV. So I, I eventually became promo producer for MTV. 
for VH1, and I used to script write the MTV Awards here in Australia. Wow, that's quite impressive. That would have been probably at the height of when MTV was really, really cool. And they yeah, actually- it was, it was. And when we still made local content, I, I don't know whether we still do. I haven't actually, it's shocking admission that I haven't watched a few weeks now. I know that the MTV office was down not too far away, actually, from King's Cross. Like down by the museum. Yeah, and I remember, yeah, even around, uh, I wasn't born in 99, maybe Gary was. <laughs> <laughs> you vicious bitch, you're doing, a mental, you're doing a mental health program and look at you stabbing me with your, you know, you. No, I, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. But, left you. But, <laughs> no, but do you remember Gary, like I, we, we were brought up on MTV back in the VHS. Uh, VH1 as well, VH1 was good, I like VH1. Yeah. But you know, like you, you, your favourite song come on MTV and this is when back it had like tapes. Yeah, yeah. And you try and yeah. get the tape in as quickly as possible, and you'd be like, yes. trying to press record to get 30 seconds of some like, yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. They were the good times. And was Verushka created for that audition, or did you have her in your mind? No, no, no. She was, um, she existed a long time before. I have always been what we used to refer to back then as gender fucked. Um, and now apparently you can't say that because it's triggering, <laughs> but. But when I came out, we were, you know, we were a lot more punk in our attitude, essentially. So, you know, didn't give a fuck. We were, you know, illegal, essentially. So it's like the generation that I grew up in. It's like when I was at school, homosexuality was still criminalized in New South Wales. And when I was at university, they finally decriminalized homosexuality around the country, um, you know, just because it had been taken to the international courts, you know, for to make sure that they did. But then it was like, decades until you know equal opportunity i mean equal age of of consent came in across the states and then of course finally marriage equality and what have you but so it's like when you come out in in um, an environment where number one you are illegal just by existing it's kind of like when when everything you do is illegal or or taboo then everything is permissible (laughs) you know what i mean because everything that you do is a you know big f you to society and uh, i'm just going to be me and survive because you know we were against it it was the height of the aids epidemic we were being murdered left right and center pushed off the cliffs at you know bondi beach um they made a you know documentary about it you know recently you know on sbs going the secret unknown side and it's like Maybe in secret to you, but we in the community all knew about it. And there was a term for it in the broader community. It was called rolling a fag to push a you know gay person off the cliff at Bondi. So, you know, yeah, used to happen quite regularly. Yeah. And we also used to have in the the laws, I think that I think they still have it up in Queensland as one of those kind of like um antiquated laws, homosexual panic defense. I've heard about this. So if you were, if you killed a gay person, you could literally say, they made a move on me, I panicked, I struck out, and I killed them. And then you would get off, either get off, or be, have the sentence of murder commuted to manslaughter. And, and I hate to say it, because look, and I'm not going to bash the police, because we have so many wonderful police, who actually, you know, come to our assistance, and there's so many fabulous gay and lesbian, you know, police officers. But back then, the police were part of the problem. I heard about that legislature, that rule. I don't know what you'd even call it, but and it was this is this was still in effect only up until the last couple of years, right? It's only recently that. Yeah, I think I think it still might be in existence in Queensland. I know that it became an issue recently, but they may have gotten rid of it. I don't know. The gay and lesbian rights lobby could tell you. I'm I'm not that you know up on it. 
you know, the world was against us. But in that kind of crucible, if you like, it actually formed a really strong community. You know, we all had to stick together, celebrate our difference and defend each other and, you know, struggle for our lives because no one else was, you know what I mean? So when you started, it was a drag queen. Obviously, it was a, a different time, as you've just explained. Yeah. A lot of those challenges that you faced, starting as a drag queen back then, you had to overcome. Do, do a lot of those challenges still remain? Or do you think they're so much? No, in fact, I think it's completely different. It's like a RuPaul's Drag Race has just made, you know, drag totally mainstream. So no one blinks twice at a drag queen. And in fact, it, you know, we have become part of the establishment, entertainment establishment, rather than the underground phenomenon that we were. But I kind of, sorry, I just realized I got off the original track of what I was saying. So when I came out, I was gender, like, you know, gender fucked. So I, you know, I look like a, a girl. I was very tall. I was very skinny. I had really long hair and I used to wear bits of girls clothes and boys clothes, whatever bit me, because I didn't care. A lot of boys clothes were designed for people who have that shape, not that shape. <laughs> so, you know, and so the designers kind of like liked the look that I had. And they, you know, then started asking me to wear their stuff and do runway stuff. And because I looked like the, they thought back then, I looked a bit like the 1960s model, Vrushka von Lendorf, who was kind of like a pre-supermodel supermodel, who was very tall, very statuesque and had very big feet. And back then I, it was very hard to find, you know, women's shoes to fit my feet. <laughs> and I used to have to have them made. They thought I was like her. So that's the, where the Vrushka comes from. So we're talking early 90s. So, and then after I did a lot of that, I actually have um, official formal theatre training and people were like, you know, well, why don't you do shows? And I was like, well, that seems to be a natural thing. And then I got into performance and from performance, you know, we got into television and film and and so on so that was just to complete the the other story credit to you and all the community you know the lgbtqi plus and um, hopefully i've got all those correctly as one particular community they've been through a lot right and they're talking we're not talking just years we're talking decades if centuries millennia if you like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a big shout out to all of those people you know credit to you for for pushing through and you said like to, to come out the other end and have that community and have even your spirit that you know in this interview has just been fantastic to see a few weeks ago we actually had a ceo of a mental health charity and nick brown from batir who worked with the youth and he had stats across the board that were just harrowing across mental health generally but in particularly the lgbtqi community have been affected more so than anybody else so he even spoke about compared to heterosexuals they face up to twice as much abuse and violence, everything from physical to mental, sexual and emotional. So they're at more risk than, let's say, uh, any other Australian. Like, have you felt that across your journey? Has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better over time? Yeah, totally. So, you know, it's like when I was at school, I got a constant stream of verbal abuse from the moment I left my front door to the, you know, the moment I you know, walked back into it. I'm just glad that I was pre-internet, otherwise it would have been on my, you know, phones and devices and what have you as well. I've experienced physical violence, assault, indecent assault, and the only reason that I haven't been raped and murdered is because I can run very fast in heels. <laughs> so yeah, it does give you a sense of a vigilance. So, you know, when I walk you know, and I, I still walk by myself because I think why, you know, the streets are mine. I'm not going to cede them to, you know, other people or live in fear. So, but, you know, when I walk 
you know, alone, especially if I'm in drag, then I'm hyper aware of my environment. I'm aware of the people around me. I don't walk on the footpath if I, you know, don't have to, because if you walk in the center of the road against the traffic, you can see the cars are coming. And if you're walking on a footpath, you can be grabbed by people in doorways, you know, that kind of thing. And you just have to be aware of, you know, your environment and what's going on around. And in some senses, things have got better. I mean, I still, one still gets abuse and I, you know, still have threats of violence. You know, I had someone wanting to stab, murder and rape me, you know, back just even before the lockdown, you know, that kind of thing. But fortunately, like I said, I can run very fast in a pair of heels and, and they weren't able to get <laughs> And had a lo- locked garage that I could actually go into. Yeah, yeah so- a handbag uh, has a pair of flats or a pair of trainers at least. Is there for a quick no change? No way. No, no way. I'm sorry. You know, I would rather die than socially die by wearing flats. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no. So but I mean, even yeah. even the even the fact that you're saying that to us now is even in itself disturbing. That you still have to think about that so do women you know that whole thing as well about whenever someone gets murdered let's say they say oh well she shouldn't have been out at that time which is just a shocking way to think about it blame shifting always it's like go well she shouldn't have been wearing that she shouldn't be walking there she shouldn't have been doing that but it's never like she didn't do anything it was the guy who did it you know or whoever it was. you know when it came to for example the lockouts and people were blaming alcohol blaming alcohol it's actually not alcohol's problem like it's not the problem of alcohol alcohol just helps reveal an underlying issue and i really think that not to make not to make a you know a menace of them or a monster of them but you know because i am one of them but i think the underlying issue is that we need to have a look at the way we raise boys and how we raise boys is the issue and you know i think that people like to blame things like drugs or alcohol what someone is wearing because it's easier to tackle a piece of clothing or a drink that someone is having rather than how we're actually raising it funny you mentioned that because before you got on we were i was talking to guy about his book called notes to my future oh. yeah because uh, we're expecting um in a few weeks and the book's a beautiful way of describing exactly what you just said but it's these lovely okay. affirmations you know to your future son and yeah it, it, it's like the lockout you know they were blaming alcohol for the lockout when it was actually the problem was masculinity and and you know toxic masculinity and guys coming yeah. in the gym and being full of uh, rage yeah. and probably steroids and they're the kind of issues not yeah, but i don't, i'm going to i'm going to just I'm going to jump in and go, I, masculinity is not the, the issue. Being in the gyms, you know, is not the issue. It's the toxic part of it that's the issue. You know, ma- masculinity has a lot of great traits about it. You know, there's, you know, there's positive things about it, like, you know, positive competition. There's finding and, you know, solution problems. There's spatial awareness. You know, there's so much good about, you know, masculine attributes, but it's just the negative ones. It's like how children, you know, boys are not taught how to deal with emotions or, you know how to properly integrate them into who they are as people it's that kind of stuff so it's like you know men are not a problem to be solved it's just how we raise fully functioning people because you know the same could be said there's toxic femininity as well you know girls you know could be trained to be submissive you know sometimes it's hormonal as well and you know there are certain aspects of being feminine that are toxic and I think that, you know it's more about teaching individuals whether they're masculine or feminine given that men and women will face different issues because of bodies because of 
hormones because of you know social you know interactions how to better integrate themselves as full developed rounded human beings in society but at the moment men are the problem and i think they're treated as a problem which makes them more of a problem as an interest as an interesting conversation the masculinity one i think one thing i think regarding raising our children and suppose the whole mental health thing as you grow up would be the support around it and i think that has progressed over time like you've already mentioned what about your community do you is there any specific support that the your community has or you reach out to or that you're aware of specifically for mental health yeah yeah specifically for mental health look um you know i'm not terribly okay with it there used to be the gay and lesbian counseling service which was the you know just a telephone line that you used to be able to call up and you know and it was staffed by volunteers but i don't know if that's still going to be quite honest i think we're aware of places like headspace and beyond blue because headspace you know also takes care of issues around especially they're often a point of call for people who are transitioning or have gender related issues you be quiet and talking <laughs> so there's that and then of course you know everyone knows beyond blue but aside from that you know there are places like um acon which is the aid aids council of new south wales it used to run i don't know if they still do so this may be outdated information but things like funness steam which is like support groups you know where people could just come together and you know talk about issues it was kind of like you know the gay community men shed <laughs> if you like but i think also just having places that we can go to that are our spaces where you can form those contacts like you know whether it be gay clubs nightclubs or sporting clubs or show, social clubs or just hanging out with friends mm. i mean your biggest mental health support are your friendship groups essentially yeah and you mentioned there you're on about community and in all that adversity that we've already spoken about it has created this fabulous community off the back of that prejudice obviously that was a banding together of um, like-minded people to try and you know support each other do you still think the need for that is still there or are we getting better at equality do you think in society like as of today well i mean we're definitely getting better at equality because we have more of it <laughs> you know what i mean and we are being murdered less you know and assaulted less and raped less but um i think that you know within the gay and lesbian community we have other issues i think that we have you know before external factors forced us together now i think that there are things like internal identity you know politics that are forcing us apart well not forcing us apart but creating divisions amongst you know amongst and between us that really didn't exist before and you know that might be a case of people finding their voices and trying to you know strike a difference but i think it's also a, a laziness within both broader society and the gay and lesbian community to lump everyone together who's different i think that there are people who belong together in a community who make sense as a community but not everyone does so for example okay let's have a look at the 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 drag world for example traditionally trans women and drag queens were very much like you know a sisterhood so if people going to transition they transitioned in the gay community because it was a safe space to do so and often you know people who you know trans women would start off maybe playing around with drag thinking that they were drag queen and then go okay i think i'm actually trans and then becoming fully transitioning but still finding places within you know the gay community to exist with it as showgirls or as you know icons or whatever but also reversely there were drag queens who might or people who might have thought that they were trans started doing drag and then realized ah oh, i'm not actually trans i'm a drag queen and then finding their place that like that now 
all of those people who find their place in their community and feel like they belong together absolutely belong. But let's just say you are a heterosexual person in the community who might be homophobic. And you decide, for example, if you were, you know, assigned male at birth, as they say nowadays, and that you were actually a woman, imagine what are you in the suburbs, if you identify as heterosexual, even if you, you know, um, are, you know, as a woman is sexually attracted by, you know, to men. So if you identify as heterosexual, you have no contact or connection with or natural gelling with the gay and lesbian community. You may even be homophobic. How is the gay community representing you? And how do you feel like you belong into the gay community? And I think that sometimes it's real laziness to mesh us all together. I kind of look at it, sometimes the gay community is treated like that table at the wedding. You know, when you go to a wedding and there's always a table where you don't know where to put people. And so they all end up on the same table. People in a corner at the back. Exactly. It's like, we don't know where to put them. We'll put them on this table with all the other people we don't know where to put. And really the only thing they have in common is that no one knows where to put it. You know what I mean? So that there will be people on that table who will naturally be allied, who will get on, who will have connections, who will have understanding. But then there are going to be people there who really don't. And I think that we have to understand that you don't have to belong to the gay and lesbian community if that's not your community. You don't have to get angry if the gay and lesbian community is not representing you because maybe it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe you're the best representative for who you are and people like you, and you can found your own community. So I think I think people need to stop being angry with each other and just kind of accept each other for their differences. Realize we've all been worked on this table together. We may not belong. Maybe if it's um, a multiple trestle table, we can fracture it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, I'm, if I was going to that wedding, that's probably the table I'd like to be on because uh, I'm- I'm always on that table. <laughs> Well, a massive generalization here, but any of the gay friends that I know throughout my life, none of them have ever been boring. They've always been so <laughs> entertaining, full of laughs, either even if they're a bit of a bitch, they're still balanced <laughs> fun. So maybe the adversity brings out that character. And I think that's one of the definite positives, I think, because, you know, I, oh, I think we're just inherently fabulous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just but, that, you know, the adversity has polished that diamond. <laughs> That's a great saying. I love that. And thinking of Australia, you know, you mentioned yeah. community and where we're at, equality and the table. I don't know about you, Gary, but for coming to Australia, you know, you hear I, I'd heard about Oxford Street. You you had Mardi Gras, mm -hmm. you know, and our Ireland was and sort of same as Scotland. Ireland was a very Catholic country, you know, we're mm. behind in many ways, even though we were the first to publicly um vote by the people for Yeah, I um, know. It's so amazing. Before us. Yeah. Like, is Australia, you know, when you scratch below the surface, it is quite conservative here. Where do you think Australia is in the global sphere in terms of all of this? It really depends on what government we have. It's like before John Howard and the Liberal Party came into power, we were leading the world, you know, when it came to gay rights. We were like the shining beacon. And I remember when people would come to Mardi Gras, and back then Mardi Gras was the major hallmark event in the country, you know, bringing more money into the country than anything else, either sporting or otherwise. And, you know, we used to have 25,000 people, you know, at the party. They were huge. And people like, you would see 
people who would come from overseas and they would cry and they would go, I wish I lived here. And I would just have to say to them, remember, it's not Mardi Gras every day. Of the <laughs> you know what I mean? We have our adversities too. But the thing is, and we were leading the way, you know, and we were going to have gay marriage earlier than every other country. Well, not every other, I think, you know, maybe there was a Scandinavian country that, you know, beat us. Because after Tasmania decriminalized, Tasmania kind of went, well, why do we have these other laws that are discriminatory against gay people? And then we started looking at marriage. So when it was discovered that marriage was not in fact completely, a, you know, a, a national affair, that it could actually be looked at as a state, you know, a state on a state by state basis, and the different states started looking at it, the Liberal Party started, you know, in the different states started shutting down those arguments. And then eventually, when we did have, um, like our very first marriage that happened was in the ACT, I think it was, when was it? It was like 2004, or something like that. And we had gay marriage for, and I could be wrong on the date, so don't quote me, we'll have to look, we'll have to fact check that one. But I remember it distinctly. We had gay marriage legalized in the ACT. People got married on that next day. And then the next day, John Howard and the Liberal Party, supported by Labour, supported by Labour, introduced legislation that basically made gay marriage null and void, you know, uh, kind of like an overarching legislation. And really the Liberal Party not only put, like the Howard government, not only put the brakes on, you know, social development advancement for gay and lesbian people, but put us back into reverse because John Howard was basically wanting to live in the 1950s, you know, with regards to women's issues, gay issues, whatever issues, you know, racial issues. So it really depends. I mean, historically, when you look at it, most like social development and, you know, most advancement in rights, whether it be for women or for you know, ethnicities or for or for gay people have occurred under a Labour party. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that as an endorsement for Labour, I'm just saying it as a matter of history. So it really depends on what government we have at the time. And we only have to look at, you know, the marriage equality vote when, you know, the Liberal Party, after having poll after poll after poll after poll after poll, saying that the, you know, the country was overwhelmingly in support of marriage equality. Mind you, so did the Labour Party, and the Labour Party did nothing about it. So there's, you know, a quality of, you know, of a mission, you know, from both parties in that sense. And, you know, $11 million on that, you know. Yeah. Because they wanted to outsource responsibility because they didn't want to have to do it. So eventually the population forced them to make a decision. And once it was made, it was like, oh, look at us. We passed marriage equality. No, you didn't. We <laughs> pried it from your cold, dead hand, <laughs> basically. It really depends on the government we're in, you know, or under what rights, not just we as gay people have, but broader society has. You know, it's like all of the issues around refugees you know racial concerns women's rights under a liberal party and never as advanced as under labor and that's not me endorsing labor that's just me stating a fact one of the things you've, you've touched on Vrishka, already is about people accept that you said when you grew up you were taller you sort of wore guys or women's clothes whatever sort of fitted you you're comfortable with that do you find that a lot of people in your community struggle with that lack of acceptance of who they are and you think that? Oh, yeah. I think, look, in some respect, I think that I'm quite unusual because I always had a very good sense of, and I don't know where it comes from. I really don't. I always had a good sense of who I was as a person. 
And I always knew that I was, you know, and I don't mean to say this in, in any way, you know, narcissistic kind of way, but I always thought I'm a pretty good person. You know what I mean? And I recognized that it was not me who had the problem. It was other people. And it was their inability to cope with difference or, you know, and I didn't, you know, back when I was a kid, I had no idea that it was because I was gay. You know, I was just different. And so I was the different one. And so the different one, you know, gets the, you know, the negative attention. But I always knew it wasn't me, that it was them. But I think that a lot of, and I don't say that to build myself up in any way, shape or form. It's just a quirk of who I am. But a lot of people in our community take on board all of that negative messaging. You know, you're wrong, you're sick, you're going to hell, you're, you know, you're perverse. The, you know, the, the things that people say that, you know, it's like the casual use of, oh, you know, that's gay, meaning, you know, that's bad or naff. It just, you know, it gets into people's psyche. And I think, you know, if their feeling gets into, into who they are as a person, then yeah, it absolutely yeah. has. I've, um a lot of support yourself and your own personal story around mental health when you're growing up, whether it was parents or friends. No, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely none, absolutely none. So it was like, you know, I think my parents were very much of that, you know, generation and I say this and I don't endorse this, but you know, of like, if someone hits you, hit them back, you know, it was that kind of thing. So, or just deal with it. So I think that, you know, it was just that kind of thing that we did it wasn't like a suppression of emotion or anything like that but it was it's like you just have to deal with it yourself mm-hmm. and so you did and what about gender you know now it feels like in the last even few years gender identity has definitely evolved quite rapidly reading out the community's name earlier on in the show do you think this has been a positive step forward you know whether it's like non-binary Look, and there's so many I, I think it's a positive and i also think it's you know, I think acceptance of diversity is always a positive, but I think there's actually been a lot of confusion around it. So I'm going to say something will probably, you know, get me a lot of hate. I absolutely believe that there are non-binary people in the world, like genuinely non-binary people in the world, but I think that they are really, really rare. So I think you have trans people, they're rare, and non-binary people are even rarer. I think what people confuse is gender expression with gender identity. And I think that a lot of people who choose to call themselves non-binary, um, not all by any stretch of the imagination, so just, you know, don't think that I'm saying this as a, you know, a, a hard and fast rule. But I think a lot of people who are claiming to be non-binary actually have really concrete notions about what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. And they're at either ends of the spectrum. And they look at themselves and their behavior or, you know, what they like to do. And they go, well, I'm not this but I'm definitely not this. So I must be somewhere in the middle. But what they don't realize is that that's just how you express who you are as a person. It's like, for me, I mean, I'm totally, you know, have, I may not look at now with, you know, weeks worth of growth looking like hell, you know, in my stripy t-shirt, but have always been, you know, gender non-conforming and very gender confusing to people. You know, people have always confused what I've I've been for most of my life, but I don't consider myself non-binary. I'm a man. I'm a gay man. And I accept that, you know, a man or a gay man, doesn't matter, can be all of these things in that kind of spectrum of gender behavior. And I think to think of a man as this and a woman of this is incredibly limiting. So I think that sometimes people are coming up with this other category because they they're unaware of their own internal limits on what it is to be a man 
or what it is to be a woman. And they're actually rebelling against that. Because, you know, really, what is it to be a man? You know, what is it to be a woman? It's, it's who you are. You define it. So for me, I define my version of what it is to be a man. For you, Gary, you, you define what it is to be your version of what it is for a man. And the same with you, Neil. And all of these are valid versions of what it is to be a man. And I don't need to create a different category of gender to do that. Do you see what I mean? I think that we can actually be a lot more integrated in our gender expression. So having said that, so I think that there, there's a lot of confusion. I think people are going for, you know, confusing gender, like actual gender and gender identity with gender expression. So I think that we've, we're out, out of whack at the moment. So a lot of people, I think if I had come out now, people, and when I did come out, everyone thought I was trans. I was the only person who knew I wasn't, <laughs> you know? But I think that if I'd come out now, people would definitely be going, you're trans or you're non-binary. And I think because of the influence of social media, YouTube, television, I probably would have agreed. And it would have been a mistake because I'm not. So I think there are great advantages to the new liberality, but I think we also need to be aware because sometimes when we're trying to create our own personas, especially if we try and do it hormonally or medically, and I'm not against hormones or, or, you know, or medical in intervention at all, but they're not always right. And for some people, they are right. They're absolutely right. So don't, I you know, want to be really clear. For some people, they are the answer. Mm. Absolute answer. It's exactly what they should be doing. But in some people who are actually just confused about their gender expression and are extrapolating it to gender identity, it can you can do some damage. I think that's some pretty solid advice there. I couldn't agree with anything more than what you just said. I think like a lot of times we, as a race, we try to put a label on something when in reality, we've said it before, there's 7 billion of us on this planet. We're all very... Yeah. So trying to put us into little buckets just doesn't work. I can certainly relate to that from experience growing up, quite in touch with my feminine side as well. And over time, some, sometimes even I would be called, you know, oh, you're gay. And you're like, well, why? Because I've been not, or I've shown my feminine side. And that's the construct that society has kind of built, which is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was like. of fabulosity. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's the yin and yang. It's like going back to that book about hopefully the next generation of men are going to be. Yeah, look, yeah. Brought up being more in touch with the yin and the yang and not just one or the other. And when. Yeah. For, for any man. You need to be able to dial into those different parts of you as a oh, man. When yeah, no, absolutely. And conversely, as a woman as well, you can be butch and still be a woman. You can be go-getter. You can be aggressive. You can, you know, love competition. And that's completely fine. It doesn't have to define you as another gender or, you know, some other, you know, in-between gender. It just defines you as a person. You know what I mean? And coming towards the end, but do you have, if you were to look at, the future Verushka out there or let's say if you met yourself 20 years ago would you have any life advice for the next gen I would if oh well if I was looking at myself I'd just say keep on trucking <laughs> or you were right <laughs> <laughs> keep it up keep going for future people look I mean I kind of like would like to say what I what I kind of said to you in your Nimbus interview that you said it's like be yourself it's okay to have you know down days that's fine just but don't hold on to it don't wallow in it realize that everything is passing whether it's success whether it's failure whether it's blah it all moves on 
remember you're not the most important person in the world. You know, the world does not evolve around you. The world owes you absolutely diddly squat. So you need to work for what you get. You need to work at your environment. You need to work on your friendships. You can't expect it all to happen to you and for it to center around you. It's got to be a multi-pronged approach. And I'm, I'm constantly, just as a little aside, I'm constantly annoyed by those people who post things about getting toxic people out of their lives. And, you know, they, those, you know, those people on social media who go toxic behavior, toxic behavior, because they totally lack the awareness that what they're doing is the toxic behavior, you know, and that in fact, they might be the problem in that situation. Mm. So I think we need to be able to look at ourselves honestly. But like I said, work for what you want. Don't expect anyone to hand it to you because they will not. If someone criticizes you or gives you advice, don't take it as a slight. Take it as an opportunity for growth because I find, especially in the world of entertainment, it's like you get young kids who get so upset if you pull them into line or if you correct something and they just take it as an attack on their ego. But the thing is, it's like, as I try to explain to sometimes to young girls, if that older performer didn't care, they wouldn't say anything and they just let you fail. So when someone takes the time to correct you or to, you know, to help you, even if you don't recognize that it's a lesson, take it on board and don't take it personally. You know, sometimes people do make personal things and you have absolutely every right to take that personally, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just work hard for what you want, work hard at your relationships, work hard at your career. If you want a healthy life, work hard at it. Simple and solid advice, Rishka, I like that. So oh, you know, it may be too simplistic, but no, you know, no, it's usually just... the best answer. The simple one's usually the right one. Just to just to wrap up for us, what we do at the end of all our little podcast interviews is we do a little 30 second four question quick fire and just so just short answers, short and punchy, quick fire questions. So the first question is when are you at your happiest? Out of 10, where do you think the world is currently in terms of mental health? Where you are in the world. What would you say out of 10? Just say Australia. Australia in terms of, well, I think we're in an exceptional circumstance because we're in a pandemic and the social isolation compounds the mental health of a lot of people because they tend to dwell. So I think at the moment we're in a bad place. I would say five. Okay, talk. And out of 10, where are you with your own mental health? Gosh, um, nine. <laughs> oh, love it. Wow. Well, it's one of those things. It's not like I'm never up, I'm never down. I'm never, you know, I mean, it's not, not that I'm never... I mean, I am, you know, I do have ups and downs and what have you, but I think it's, you know, when taken in, in into consideration, I'm kind of like fine with everything, if you know what I mean. But, you know, there's no such thing as perfection. I'm not, a, you know, walking around as if I'm in a constant state of being on MDMA, <laughs> you know. But um, I just set the boring times with the boring times, the sad times with the sad times and the happy times with the happy times and they are what they are and they're all of value and, you know, you experience them appropriately. If you could recommend just one thing for people to do each day to improve their mental health, what would it be? Get out of yourself. Nice. Nice. Nice wrapped up. And what? so what's next for Verushka? Well, I don't know. I mean, this is the funny thing. It's like people always get frustrated about, with me, you know, people who have career plans and, uh, you know, goals in life. You know, where are you going to be in five years' time? Which I, you know, always find incredibly frustrating because I never know where I'm going to be tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, and that's part of the joy because I, everything is a surprise. You know, everything is new. Everything is a revelation. So I don't know. 
is the answer. I believe that hopefully the, you know, there'll be some, you know, that will be opening up soon. I've had approaches from a couple of different venues to get me back. I don't think we'll be back in any way, shape, like, you know, I used to work six nights a week. I don't think that's going to be happening for, for years. So we'll just play the ball that is served to us and we'll see what happens. And where can people find anyone listening who wants to see what you're about, any of your shows, anything you do at all, where can they find more of your stuff? I mean, you're more than welcome to follow me on social media. So, Brushka uh, Darling, either on Facebook or Instagram. I'm generally posting on Instagram more often than Facebook, but during lockdown, I do my advice shows, which is actually just a stand-up, well, it's a stand-up comedy where I'm sitting down, essentially, a show called Let's Talk About Sex, where people write to me with their problems. And for those of you who are just listening, I'm now doing air quote fingers around the word problem. <laughs> and then I solve similar air quote fingers around the word solve. I solve their problems live. So, you know, in real time. So, but in the most humorous way I possibly can. Because life is life is serious enough. Let's let's not take it too seriously. Okay, we'll have to edit in that song. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> no, don't, because I actually have a song called um, "What Should I Draw," which is actually was written for me because of the show. <laughs> it's available for download on iTunes and um, I think all downloadable sound places. It's oh, written by Andre Cordova. Oh, I can send you a link. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Except we do it. use a word in there that I use that might be considered inappropriate. So we'll, <laughs> so maybe not. We could perhaps just let's talk about sex. We'll be fine. Well, we love it. We love a little bit of uh, inappropriateness. In fact, there was one thing I wanted to say on the show, but in terms of drag queens, probably my favorite name that I've come across over the years was Tora Hyman. I just. Oh, yeah. Oh my god, that is genius. <laughs> well, it's kind of one of those things a drag name like that can, you know, have incredible cash, but it can also be a bit limiting, you know, <laughs> when you're coming to do, you know, a corporate gig. Because one of my girlfriends from the 90s, who's still working, mind you, Tess Tickle, it's amazing how when a corporate client discovered what her last name was, that you know, suddenly the name became a bit of an issue. Yeah. Hopefully people have moved on because she's still working in the world and still doing corporate gigs because she's fabulous. But I um, yeah. I could imagine Google, some head of people and culture at Google going, I've got this great person that we can use. And there's like, what's the name? Well, <laughs> or Marilyn Mutrob, who's... <laughs> <laughs> and I love, you know, I love old Moody, as we call her. I do. And, but, you know, she's, she's as rough as her name sounds, but she's a delight. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one, you know, you can imagine getting up at a, a corporate event and going, and now your hostess tonight, move Moot Rob, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> We all, each show, we kind of have a little bit of homework for both Gary and I and also listeners. So it's a nice way to end. But I think this this particular episode, the homework will be when the doors do open with lockdown, get out and see a show of Rushkas or any other drag queen in the industry. And you know. and say the homework should be actually support all your artists regardless of their sexuality or gender or what have you, because the arts community has been doing it tough. 
And, you know, so if you can go to a venue that has a show, support your, your venues, go out and drink, because the more you go out, and let's face it, we all love to do it. The more you go out, the more likely those venues are, you know, will be able to afford to actually hire entertainment back. Go to a venue that actually puts on performers as opposed to one that doesn't, unless one that doesn't used to and is just waiting to, you know, get that performance back. Support the arts, go out and see a show, do anything you can. And if people are still trapped online, toss those pictures a bone, you know, donate to their PayPal or their coffee or whatever it is that, you know, account that they have. And help support it because let's face it, the first people you call if you want someone to support your cause is an artist. Mm. So now that they need your help, help them. And But the funny thing is, by helping an artist, you're actually helping yourself because isn't it fun to go and see a show? Definitely. Yeah. It definitely is. Yeah, well said. I think anytime you go to any kind of show, regardless of what it is, as you said, you always leave there going, why don't I do this more often? That's what I always say. So get out and see a show, guys. So Varushka, I just want to say thanks for your time. Obviously, we know you had a show tonight, so massively insightful and uh, very intelligent as well. Some really simple and solid advice from you. Really appreciate your time. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzier, and the Black Dog Institute.